Jonah chapter 4. Let me again read the context of the passage that we're going to be finishing up with today. The end of chapter 3, we saw that when God saw the deeds of the Ninevites, that they turned from their wicked way, and God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it, and it greatly displeased Jonah. He came angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, the one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Well, then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. And he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. And so the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when the dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. And God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. And the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? The great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals. Jonah's still in a bad way. Like Jonah, we portray our enemies in sinister shapes in order to justify our behavior toward them. James Edwards writes, uh, also like Jonah, we find it hard to conceive that what we detest in our enemies might actually be present in us. And what the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, is the book of Jonah reduced to a single pronouncement, therefore you have no, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on another. For at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Edward says, I was forced to face this sober truth not long ago. Like many people, I was shocked by the catastrophe on Mount Everest in May of 1996 in which a dozen mountaineers perished. One of the most disturbing sideshows in that circus of tragedies was the story of two Japanese climbers who in their summit bid bypass three injured, starving, and freezing climbers. You might remember that scenario. The Japanese had sufficient provisions to render aid to the stranded climbers, but they did not want to jeopardize their ascent by stopping to assist them. And as a result, all three climbers died. Later, when asked why they had not stopped to help, one of the climbers said, quote, We were too tired to help. Above 8,000 meters, that's 26,000 feet, is not a place where people can afford morality, unquote. Now, if you've watched any movies or shows about climbing Mount Everest, they'll all say the same thing, right? At that altitude, you can't afford to stop and help someone else because you'll both die. 
Is there really? That would be problematic for me, wouldn't it? For you? The actions of the two climbers and the statement, he says, attempting to justify them were, in my judgment, a callous and contemptible example of egoism. On a number of occasions, I retold the story in my preaching and teaching to illustrate the true face of egoistic ethics based on unjustifiable and doubly so in the mountains where the dangers inherent in climbing should make all climbers their brother's keepers. After a few years later, he says, while leading a college study tour to the Middle East, I was hiking up Mount Sinai in the darkness before dawn in order to be on the summit at sunrise. And the hike up the 7,500-foot Mount Sinai is tame in comparison to Mount Everest, where oxygen deprivation impairs physical exertion and judgment itself. Now, as my students and I neared the top of Mount Sinai, the, we were passed by two Bedouins carrying a man down the mountain. The man was unconscious. His sporadic breathing, rattling, and gurgling indicated that he was in critical condition. He was, I suspected, suffering from pulmonary edema, a malady of mountaineering caused by ascending too rapidly. Pulmonary edema is fatal unless the climber affected is taken rapidly down to a lower level. For a brief moment, I considered halting my ascent and helping the Bedouins carry the man down the mountain, but my desire to make it to the top checked my impulse. And without further thought, I gave one of the better ones my flashlight and continued on upward. They seemed to be doing all right by themselves, and I assured my uneasy conscience. Sunrise from the summit was glorious, but it was overshadowed by what transpired on the way down, because not far below the place where we had passed the Bedouins, a figure draped with a blanket was lying on the ground. Two shoes protruded from under the blanket. The man carried by the Bedouins was dead. Whether he died while being carried down or was put down and died, I do not know. I do know, however, that every step down that mountain smote my conscience. What I had found so loathsome in the two Japanese climbers on Mount Everest had been essentially liberated in my own action on Mount Sinai. That is the message, he says, of the book of Jonah. What Jonah detests in Nineveh is present in himself. God is patient with Jonah's self-righteousness as he has been with Nineveh's wickedness. He reaches for the heart of this troubled soul in Jonah if it can be reached at all. Jonah and the Ninevites have traded places. The inability to repent, which Jonah all along ascribed to Nineveh, is his own inability as well. And the grace that Jonah begrudges Nineveh is the very grace by which Jonah is being sustained. Jonah's angry reaction to the outpouring of God's amazing grace upon the Ninevites exhibits for us the marks of a heart, I began last week, that is not on board with God. Quick review of last week. We found out that the first one was the release of misplaced passion. Jonah starts pouting. But then he prays. But we saw that the downside is that it was a self-serving prayer. 
And then we go to the second mark of a heart that's not quite right with God, and that's the response of misguided prayer. And it, we unpack that prayer to show that he engages in rationalization, that he employs theological and orthodox recitation. He talks about how, who God is, and he quotes the famous Jewish you know, psalms, and, and he's quoting scripture back to God. And then he exhibits a rational desperation in the face of all of that. God's sovereign grace comes and shows us once again that he's not finished with Jonah. He begins drawing him to the point of conviction. He's not coming down hard on Jonah at this point. He's, he simply asks the first of two very probing questions designed to bring Jonah to the realization of his own sinful attitude. That's what happens when God pursues a heart that is not quite in sync with his heart. He seeks to open our eyes to the revelation of a mistaken perspective. And that brings us to verse 4. The Lord said, do you have reason to be angry? He's drawing Jonah out. He's bringing him to the place where that sin in his heart is going to come forth from his mouth. That's what he wants. But you know what's happening here? Jonah's not talking. He goes silent. Jonah's anger is so inflamed that he doesn't even verbally respond to God's question. He goes silent and he's lost sight of God. He's left his first love. Fire in his heart that once burned for God now burns only for Jonah. And he's at the place where if he doesn't change soon, the light of the gospel that God originally put in his heart as a prophet, as a spokesperson for God, may be in danger of being removed. This is indeed the warning to any New Testament church and more specifically to any follower of Christ. Remember that warning? Let me refresh your memory. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says to John, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these things, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds, that your toil and perseverance is great, that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. I mean, picture putting Jonah in here. This is a letter to Jonah, not Ephesus. And he says to Jonah, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at the first or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Can you hear God saying that to Jonah? And he says it to all of us. If the shoe fits. May not fit, but it may. Someone once told me that first love includes at least three things. You can mark these things down. An intense enthusiasm for Christ. A longing to be near Christ. And that happens through prayer and worship in the word. And a desire to serve Christ. Those three things at least are part of first love. Think about it. Think about it in terms of a love relationship. Think about it in terms of your relationship with your girlfriend or your wife, right? 
All these things were true of my relationship with Denise when we first started dating. I had an intense enthusiasm for her, a longing to be near her. We didn't want to be apart ever. And a desire to serve her. Are they still true now? After 41 years? You bet you, fella. Amen. Absolutely. Amen. What are the signs of someone who has left their first love? Diminished enthusiasm for the Lord. No desire to pray. No desire to read the word. No desire to participate in worship. An apathetic approach to serving others in Christ's name. Are these true of your relationship with Christ? In part or in whole? Because it's a valid question. Because this is Jonah. And it could be you. And it could be me. Is it? Jonah needs revival. It's a message by James McDonald. He poses this penetrating question. He says, do we need revival? Do we need revival? You think? You can, rhetorical, you don't have to answer the question to me. And then he proceeded to list some indicators which may serve to answer the question of whether or not we need it. We know we need revival when. It's like, you know, you know you're a redneck when. <laughs> you know you need revival when. When prayer ceases to be a vital part of a Christian's life. You know you need revival when the quest for biblical truth ceases and one becomes content with the biblical knowledge they've already attained. When earnest thoughts about the reality of eternity and thoughts of the eternal condition of our loved ones ceases to move us. When I do not rejoice in the blessing of God on another person's life, but I struggle with envy. When aspirations for Christ-like holiness ceases to dominate my thinking, I need revival. When I can hear the Lord's name taken in vain and listen to spiritual things mocked and dragged through the mud and not be moved to righteous indignation, I need revival. When I can watch degrading TV movies and read inappropriate literature and not be grieved and shut it off or walk away, we need revival. When I find more delight in the promotion of discord than unity and harmony among the Lord's people, he says, we need revival. And finally, when injustices, human misery exists all around us and we do literal or nothing to relieve it, we need revival. Now, Maybe these things don't characterize you. Maybe one or two of them do. They're just suggestions, but put them all together and guess what? You got Jonah. Now, they may, not be, they may be more applicable in our day and age in this culture than to Jonah, but the fact is, is that Jonah's heart is exhibiting all the signs that it needs a rekindling of a relationship with God. And the next one is telltale. This is, this is the reaction of misaligned priorities. Verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city. He sat east of it and he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen 
in the city. Instead of moving toward a reinvigorated relationship with God by remembering from where he came, repenting of his rebellion, and returning to the things he did at the first, as it says in Revelation, Jonah does just the exact opposite of those things. He makes three huge mistakes. Now, listen to these and think about the last time that you were kind of in a backslidden state, or maybe you're there now. Think about these mistakes that we make when we're not in a good relationship with God. And I see Christians doing this all the time. Number one, instead of rekindling his enthusiasm for God, Jonah quit. Three things. Jonah quit, Jonah got himself alone, and Jonah became a spectator. Okay? Instead of rekindling his enthusiasm, he quit. Instead of taking steps to move closer to God, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, Jonah got alone. He made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade. Instead of seeking somewhere to serve, Jonah became a spectator, it says in verse 5, until he could see what would happen in the city. So he goes outside the city, east of it, and that phrase, east of, in the scripture, a lot of times you will see that it means in defiance of what God is doing. So Jonah goes east of the city in defiance of what God is doing there, which raises the question, Jonah, what in the world are you doing outside the city when God is transforming lives inside the city? He's totally self-absorbed. He's turning his back on what God's doing, right? Read Psalm 73 this week and uh, see what the psalmist writes uh, about, about that kind of thing. A few things, you know, Psalm 73, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. He did the right thing. He drew closer to God. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Who in heaven do I have but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my life, and my portion forever. Amen? For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of my God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. That's the answer to Jonah's problem. But he didn't do that. Note the contrast here in this context. The king of Nineveh sits humbly on ashes of repentance while Jonah sits smugly in the shade of his own arrogance. Jonah got, just got off being part of a national awakening, and now he's on the sidelines. He builds himself a little shelter. He situates himself under it where he could watch what happened in the city. I could see him in his little lawn chair out on the side of the mountain looking over the city in the shade. Right? They came to Christ. They came to Christ, but, you know, I know them. I know what they're like. That's going to be short-lived. 
They're going to turn back to their old ways, and I'm just going to sit here and watch God just pour out his wrath on that city. That's what he's thinking, probably. He's still mad, right? I think he's still secretly hoping that God's wrath is going to fall. He's banking on the notion that the Ninevites' repentance would be short-lived, return to their wicked ways. God's going to change his mind about relenting, and he's going to wipe these people out. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what happened eventually. But not in this generation. Forty years later, this generation who repented was replaced by another generation who didn't follow the ways of their parents, who turned back to its evil and violence and attacked and crushed the ten northern tribes of Israel. One generation, that fast, it can turn around. But nevertheless... Jonah should have rejoiced in the present generation that embraced God. But instead, Jonah got off on his own little Jonah world. Angry, pouting, isolated, exactly where the enemy of his soul wants him to be, right? Isn't that true? You ever read the book of Jonah and in the back of your mind start to think, this is spiritual warfare. I never have until studying the book. Don't discount the element of spiritual warfare in Jonah's life. It doesn't say anything about it here. But you've got to know that there's somebody behind what's going on. Sinclair Ferguson observes, in a sense, that is part of the price we all pay for being involved in Christian work. We easily forget that we are not wrestling with flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers in Ephesians 6. As soon as we begin to make inroads into the kingdom of darkness, there are bound to be repercussions in our life of lasting significance as Satan counterattacks. Is that right? And you can see his tactics here. He's making a spiritual wreck of Jonah, God's prophet. And again, as Ferguson counsels, the Christian who loses his taste for what God is doing must look to see who as well as what is dulling his palate. The enemy of our souls, in the words of Jesus Christ, comes to steal and kill and destroy. And he wants to do it to God's people. But that is no excuse for Jonah's prejudiced behavior. It is, however, an insight into why God continued to relentlessly pursue Jonah. And he provided gracious care in verse 6. So the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head. Why? To deliver him from his discomfort. Now, wouldn't you and I just say, oh, let him sit and wallow in his pain for a while. But now God, God provides something to deliver him from his discomfort. Jonah built himself, defiantly built himself a shelter. God took pity on Jonah and graciously and miraculously provided a better one for him. God is still pursuing Jonah here and treating him with undeserved favor, but the plant didn't move Jonah to change. Enter the fifth indicator of a heart that is not right with God, and that is a resistance towards God's merciful providence. Verses 6 to 8. So the Lord God appointed the plant, grew up. Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Verse 7, but then God, he didn't change, so God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day, 
and it attacked the plant and it withered. And then when the sun came up, on top of that, God appointed a scorching east wind. It beat down on Jonah's head and he became faint and begged with all his soul to die. Notice the phrase here, God appointed. Circle it, because it's written a few times. God appointed, God appointed, God appointed. A very strategically repeated phrase in the book of Jonah. God provided comfort here and he also provided chastisement. God brought four divine appointments to move Jonah out of his spiritual funk in this book. God appointed a great fish to deliver him at the very beginning of his rebellion in chapter 1, verse 17. Then he appoints a shade plant to comfort him in verse 6 here. But the blessing didn't work, so God sends chastening in two different forms. He appoints a worm, and then he appoints a wind in verses 7 and 8. And all of it came from God. Does that bother you? The same God who brought the plant brought the worm and the wind. The God who brings comfort also allows us to experience discomfort. The real question, as Ray Pritchard boils it down, is will Jonah be happy with God only when God makes him happy? I think of Job's reaction to his own plight, which, by the way, was not due to Job's misaligned heart, but to Satan's vicious attack. But what did, I'm not interested in how it got caused. What I am interested in is how Jonah reacted. Chapter 1 of Job, you know these verses, verses 20 to 22. And Job arose, he tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away, has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin, and he did not blame God. Psalm 34, 19, the psalmist says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. All of the divine appointments that Jonah experienced here were designed to bring Jonah to his spiritual senses and to draw him out of this downward spiral that he was in of his self Centered outlook, his self-pitying attitude, his self-absorbed lifestyle, and his self-deceived heart. But Jonah is so far out of sorts that he can't see any of that. He resists God's overtures, tooth and nail, to the point where he wants to die. And God asks him for the second time, do you have good reason to be angry? Is your angry reasonable, Jonah? The first time Jonah went silent and AWOL, this time he faces off with God in and another sign of his misguided heart. It's a reiteration of his former misplaced passion. Look at verse 9. God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to the point of death. Someone had said how we react is often a better thermometer of our heart than how we act. This is probably the ultimate indicator of a heart that is not on board with God's program. And in Jonah's case, it finally comes forth from his lips. What's inside is now just kind of bubbling over and it's just coming out his mouth. That's a pretty low place to be as a child of God. What's, what's Jonah say? Death is better to me than life. 
He begged with all his soul to die. And you understand the thrust of those words, right? That's a pretty low place to be as a child of God, wishing you were dead. James McDonald says there's nothing that the enemy of our souls would want more than to lead someone so far into desperation that they would contemplate ending their own life. That's the enemy. And this brings up a couple of very important observations that I kind of alluded to last week. Apparently, it is not impossible for people, even Christians, to do the right thing for the wrong reasons and the ministry still be blessed because Nineveh got saved. But Jonah obviously wasn't preaching for the right reasons. He's doing it, but reluctantly. But even more frighteningly, that it may be possible for us to obey God while harboring a terrible attitude. We can do that. Paul alluded to it in Philippians chapter 1 when he talked about those preachers when he was in jail, right? And he was in jail. I want you to know, he says in verse 12 of chapter 1, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So the gospel's getting spread all around because he's in prison. That my imprisonment has become well known for the cause of Christ. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, he says, are preaching Christ from envy and strife. They're doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. They're doing the right thing with a bad attitude. But some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What's Paul's reaction? Whatever. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So, the fact of the matter is, folks, that even our best deeds are tainted with sin, right? Our best motives for God are often far from 100% pure. We need to know that. We need to know that because without God, without Christ, we can do nothing of eternal significance. We need to know that we need him. Every hour. Read John 15, verses 4 to 5. That does not excuse Jonah by any stretch of the imagination, or us for that matter. What it does mean is that we need to realize that repentance is not a one-shot deal. It is a daily posture. And by the way, just as a side note here, Although Jonah's obedience was so flawed, God still used him to accomplish his purpose in Nineveh. That should continue to encourage us. I know that if I waited to preach every single week, says one author, until I knew my motives were absolutely 100% pure, I'd never do it. In fact, let me help liberate you right now. And I appreciated his text here. He said, if you're waiting to make a decision or step forward in obedience to God's guidance because you want to make sure that your motives are perfectly pure, you'll be waiting till you die. 
Your motives will always have a little self-centeredness mixed in. That's just part of sin's effect on us, on all of us. There will always be a smidgen of pride coloring our actions, however big or small those actions are. The fact of the matter is, though, it serves to show us how badly we need Christ. Right? Doesn't excuse anything. It just shows us that our daily posture needs to be one of repentance. That's not a one-shot deal. So the Lord reaches out gently to Jonah and one more time with one well-placed, well-timed, heart-piercing question to which Jonah does not respond. Verses 10 and 11. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? Should I not? God says, Jonah, I'm a God of compassion. You are a man. You had compassion on a plant. Shouldn't I have compassion on a whole city of persons? Now notice that. God's saying to Jonah, do you see the inconsistency here in your behavior? And I love the word that the Holy Spirit uses here in Jonah. He uses the word persons. It's not just generic people. These are persons. They're human beings created in God's image. You know what the word is? It's the Hebrew word Adam. Adam. It's who we are. Adam's offspring, complete with personhood. It's not just that people matter to God. Persons matter to God. All persons. And God's saying, you cared for one plant. How shouldn't I have compassion? And that word for compassion, I read, was the Hebrew word which means eyes Filled with tears. So insert that there. You cared for one plant, Jonah. Shouldn't I have my eyes filled with tears on a half million persons whom I created, 120,000 of which are children, maybe even in the womb? And for that matter, even the animals, Jonah, aren't they all worth my attention? It all ends with Jonah just sitting there. He's just sitting there. Right? It does, you can't find any other record of what happened. And you and I sitting here. That's how it ends. Jonah sitting there and you and I sitting here. What will we do? Will we leave the, this place with a heart like Jonah? Exhibiting a refusal to deal with God's definitive question, because that's how the book ends. It's an unresolved ending, right? It's interesting that both the parable of the prodigal son and the book of Jonah end unresolved, with the older bro brother just wallowing out there. 
And we don't know what happened in the life of either the older brother or Jonah. It ends, as one author suggests, with a rebel saved by grace and a loving father appealed to a self-righteous powder. It's not that the storyteller can't think up an ending. It's that this story isn't about Jonah. People just can't walk away and dismiss it. They have to keep working it out. And here once again, as I suggested in the very first message in this series, we realize that Jonah is us. It's up to us to keep working this out, isn't it? He doesn't convict us to condemn us. He wants to shape us into the image of his son and our savior, Jesus. All of us must inevitably deal with the Jonah within us. The rest of the story is yet to be written, my friends. You and I supply the ending to this story with our own lives. In the timeless words of Teresa of Avila, she said, Christ has no body on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ's compassion for the world is to look out. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. And yours are the hands with which he is to bless us now. And I'm so thankful that this church, the majority of this church is so on board with shoulder to shoulder. Because that's what it is. And so as we close the door on the book of Jonah, I want us to consider a very probing and penetrating thought that I was confronted with and convicted by this week during my study time. Here it is. Is there anything that I am more concerned about in my life than my concern for introducing unbelieving people to Jesus Christ and helping them to become his committed followers? to go and give them Jesus? That is a question worthy of consideration every single day of our lives. Is there anything? And I think that we will find, as one man admitted, that as soon as we ask that question, we will probably not like the answer. Because it quickly morphs into the question, it's not, is there anything, but how many things? How many things? I wonder if Jonah thought that. We don't know because it doesn't say how he responds. Again, it seems Jonah leaves the issue unresolved. Whenever I encounter an unresolved ending, it almost always brings me back to the author's note written on the opening page of the best-selling book, Blue Like Jazz. Let me read it to you. Author's note. Some of you probably have heard this before. He writes, I never like jazz music because jazz music doesn't resolve. How many could attest to that? But then he said, I was outside the Baghdad Theater in Portland, Oregon one night when I saw a man playing the saxophone and I stood there for 15 minutes and the guy never opened his eyes. After that, I liked jazz music. Sometimes, get this now, watch this. Sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. It's as if they're showing you the way. 
He says, I used to not like God because God didn't resolve. But that was before any of this happened. So I suppose in the aftermath of this series, someone could well adapt that sentiment to this book of Jonah by changing a few words. And I've taken the liberty to do that. This is the way that I write that. I never liked the book of Jonah because the book of Jonah doesn't resolve. But then I saw God playing the grace card. I sat there for four chapters of a prodigal's rebellion and God never turned his gaze away from him. After that, I loved the book of Jonah. Sometimes you have to watch God love somebody before you can love them yourself. It's as if he's showing us the way. I used to not understand the faithful, compassionate, long-suffering, steadfast love of God, but that was before Jonah happened. Because God is a relentless pursuer of his prodigal children. The bottom line is that the same compassion that moved the heart of God to spare Nineveh is the same compassion that moved the heart of God to relentlessly pursue Jonah. It's the same heart of compassion that relentlessly pursues you and me. And although God was willing to spare Nineveh, Jonah, and all of us, in order for that to happen, he had to be unwilling No, he had to be willing to, that he could not spare his own son, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Romans 8, 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God was willing to spare Nineveh. God was willing to spare Jonah. God was willing to spare you. God was willing to spare me. But he was not willing to spare his son. He didn't spare him from the, from the destruction of the cross. He gave him over. And isn't that grace? Isn't that God playing the grace card on our behalf? And so in a strange sort of way, when you think about it, the book actually does resolve in a way. Because, watch this now, if Jonah is the author, which historical tradition has claimed that he is, tracking with me? If Jonah is the author, then this narrative is Jonah's personal testimony, which suggests to me that maybe he did finally get it after all. And he's leaving us with a question so that we might get it as well. The question today is, do we get it? Do we get it? I often close my messages with an unresolved question. I think that's, that's what Joan is doing. Let me close this message with the same words. I used to conclude the first message in this series. And may they be your constant prayer as well as mine. Close your eyes and join with me as I pray. Lord, make me less like Jonah and more like Jesus. Save me from being the kind of person who cares more about my comfort and my reputation 
and my success than I do about the people you are calling me to serve. Help me to keep all of my dreams on your altar and be ready at all times to respond with faith and obedience to your call. In the precious name of your Son, Jesus, and our Savior, I pray. Amen.